This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Last night of all, when yon same star that's westward from the pole had made his course to illume that part of heaven where now it burns, Marcellus and myself... The bell then beating one piece. Break the off. Look where it comes again. In the same figure, like the king that's dead. Thou art a scholar. Speak to it, Horatio. Looks it not like the king. Mark it, Horatio. Most like. It harrows me with fear and wonder. It would be spoke to. Question it, Horatio. What art thou? That usurps this time of night. Together with that fair and warlike form in which the majesty of Berry Denmark did sometimes march. By heaven I charge thee. Speak! Hello and welcome to The Plays The Thing. That was a portion of Act One of Scene One of Hamlet. The visitation of Hamlet's father as a ghost to Horatio. We are here discussing the granddaddy, maybe of all of Shakespeare's plays, Hamlet. I am Tim McIntosh, and I am joined by... Hey, White. And I'm Andrew Kern. And we are delighted that you have joined us for the first act of Hamlet. You guys, we've kind of been looking forward to this one for a while. Uh, not just because it's, you know, maybe the Shakespeare play. We'll discuss whether or not this is Shakespeare's finest work, but also because we all three of us have a special affinity for this play, which is going to come out a lot during the course of our discussions. But first of all, I just want to say thank you so much for being here. Um, For those of you who don't know who Andrew Kern is, Andrew Kern is the president of the Searcy Institute, which is the host of the plays, the thing. So you hear us all the time talking about the Searcy Institute. Well, this is the guy who started it. 
And it's a special, it's kind of a coup for us to have him on the show for these five acts of uh, Shakespeare's Hamlet plus a Q&A episode, which will fall at the end. Hey, Andrew, thanks for coming on the show. Well, it's a little ominous to hear talk of a coup when we're doing Hamlet, but you're welcome. <laughs> at least it's not Macbeth. <laughs> yeah, at least it's not Macbeth. That's right. I'd like to start you guys. Let's just, I want to kind of get the play in a little bit of its historical context. I don't mean about the writing of the play. I don't mean about the original events of the play, which happened in Denmark, but just kind of what Hamlet means. My, my, my first question is, why is this play such a big deal? I mean, it's probably not just on the Mount Rushmore for Shakespeare, it's probably on the Mount Rushmore of world literature. This play has been produced so many times in every continent, save Antarctica. It's probably been performed on, in, in Antarctica in all variety of different languages through translation. Why is the play so compelling? And do you think it deserves its accolades? I mean, Hamlet is... You called it the granddaddy. It's the OG. It's the godfather. It absolutely belongs on Mount Rushmore, not just of Shakespeare, but as you say, of all world literature. And we are hoping between the three of us to make the case for why Hamlet is so, so compelling and so enduring across the centuries. We hope over the next six weeks that we can we can convince you, listeners, of this play. I think it, I mean, there's so many different levels to that. Hamlet as a character is so compelling. The storyline is so archetypal. There's all of these just like hidden gems and themes throughout the play and the language is just masterful. I have made, I feel like this is a little bit of an embarrassment of riches on the plays, the thing for 2021. Because we got to do Richard II, we got to do yeah. Romeo and Juliet. After this, yeah. we're doing Henry IV, Part One, which is yeah. my favorite play. And now we're doing Hamlet. Like this is, it almost feels just like too much. It's just so, so, so exciting. So, but Andrew, who loves this play more than maybe anyone on the face of the earth, except for Tim McIntosh, I really want to hear why you. <laughs> think Hamlet is a masterpiece. Yeah. Why is it such a big deal, Andrew? You mean to me personally? Yeah. Talk about you personally. Why is it such a big deal to you personally? I like having my skin ripped off my head, my skull removed and put in my hand and then staring at it. There's just something compelling about having your heart ripped out, removed from your body and then placed in front of you where you have to contemplate its beating. It's, it's just, it's beyond deep. It, it, it penetrates into you. It makes you look at yourself in a way that, in my experience, nothing else does. And I don't mean look at yourself in the sense of like the adolescent needing to see God so he looks in the mirror. I mean, I mean in the sense of forcing you to look ever more deeply into the reality of who you are so that you can look for solutions or cures or however you want to put it. Andrew, what about the play does that? Can you give us a little foretaste? It's hard to say, because I'll tell you, my first experience with Hamlet, believe it or not, was the movie, Mel Gibson, mm. which I saw when it came out in the theater. Mm. And when I left, I was with my parents and Karen, my wife. And when I left the theater, I remember stepping onto an escalator saying to them, that is the best movie I have ever seen. I have no idea why. Mm. 
And that's how Hamlet has been for me ever since then. There's something, as soon as you settle on something or as soon as you think you've got it figured out, he shakes you again. And th there's, there's an impenetrable depth to it. And at the same time, it's a relatively simple story, uh, you know, and a, a revenge story that just yeah. keeps not happening. <laughs> Eternal deference. Tim, what about you? I mean, you, like I said, I am on this podcast with the two Hamlet lovers extraordinaire. What is it about this play that's so compelling for you? I have a really similar story to Andrew. I saw the Mel Gibson version in the theater and my previous exposure to Hamlet had been, I'm sure that I had read it, you know, at some point in college. And I think that I had seen the Laurence Olivier movie, which I have a quibble with. I, I think for me, the juxtaposition of Laurence Olivier's performance and Mel Gibson's performance, something about Mel Gibson's performance just made Hamlet alive. So, but, we're going to talk during this show at various points about different productions. I just want to right now talk a little bit about the Lawrence Olivier production versus the Mel Gibson production, because I think they're both worth listeners time. In other words, if you've got kids and you know, you want to like expose them to Hamlet for the first time, or maybe you want to be exposed to Hamlet for the first time. I think either one of these movies are a fine way in but I just am afraid that Laurence Olivier's version, because Hamlet is so contemplative, bores people to death about the most exciting play that's maybe ever been written. And what I loved about Mel Gibson, Andrew, I wonder if you remember this scene. He is, let me stop. Laurence Olivier puts all of his cards on the table before the movie even really begins by saying, he has this voiceover and he says, this is a story of a man who can't make, up his, make up his mind. And you're like, oh, really? That's what this story is about. I mean, of course. Yeah. Hamlet has a hard time making up his mind. And there are various points where he like lashes himself because he can't take action. But is that what the story is? Is that really what the story is? I mean, we're going to explore that during these podcasts. I'm going to argue that that. That's not what this story is. There's a whole lot more going on, but we'll get there. When I saw Mel Gibson, he, and he remains one of my favorite Hamlets. I know that he's been in the news for all sorts of bad stuff. I think he is absolutely delightful as Hamlet. And there's a scene, I believe it's act four, where he's kind of being chased around the castle by Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. And he finally is going to confront the king, his uncle, the great villain of the play. And he leaps up on this table. Do you remember this, Andrew? Leaps up on this table and tell, and, you know, basically confronts the king, but also says, I realize I've got to go to England. I realize you're going to banish me. Um, and I'm going to take off. But there was so much energy and force of will in Mel Gibson's production that I saw Hamlet in a completely new light and I started to fall in love. And then the capstone of the story is a few years ago, I got to play Hamlet. So I memorized, I mean, I, I was in a performance in Oregon and I have like a few acting goals for myself. One of my chief acting goals for myself was being able to play Hamlet before I was 
frankly, too old to play Hamlet. So I was there playing Hamlet all through rehearsals and through, you know, two months of performances. And if I, I had already loved the play and then I fell in love with it even more. Let's get into the play a little bit. I want to touch on the plot briefly because Andrew, you mentioned it's a revenge story and it is a revenge story. One of the things that I appreciated about my director when we performed it, he's like, it's going to be really easy to to get swept up into the thoughts and the philosophy and the theology that are in this play. But as actors, we have a simple story to tell and the simple story to tell is a revenge story. Um, So let me just tell the revenge story for those of you who are maybe joining us. You kind of remember Hamlet from a college production or something like that. Play opens with um, some guards and a friend of Hamlet's on a big castle in Denmark. And there's rumors being whispered that a ghost has been appearing or a ghost has appeared on the battlements of this castle. Horatio, we find out, is Hamlet's best friend. He's a little bit skeptical about this ghost. And lo and behold, the ghost appears. The audio that we heard at the top of the show is Horatio trying to get this ghost to stop and talk to him. Okay, so it's a tremendous mystery. Like, why is this ghost appearing? It sure appears that it has, it's like the visage is of Hamlet's father. Horatio tries to talk to him. And after that scene, scene one, we go to our next scene, which is within the castle itself. And we meet all the major players of the play with the exception of Horatio, who we've already met. I just want to pause here. Part of the reason this play is so good, and I want your, your feedback on this. Part of the reason this play is so good is that the hook for this play is incredible. Just the opening scene, the hook that it puts in the audience's mouth, like you have to watch more, is so good. A ghost, the father of Hamlet, is is in a state of unrest. Horatio, Hamlet's best friend, receives this news. And in scene two, Horatio delivers the news to Hamlet that his father is something like his father is appearing on the battlements of this castle and is in a state of unrest. And Hamlet already senses that something is not right. You know, like we've already been set up in scene two to know that something is not right in Denmark. And the beginning of scene three is Hamlet going up on the, no, actually that's scene four, going on the battlements to try to discover what, what this ghost is about. Do you guys agree with me? Isn't the, isn't the opening that just like, don't you just like have to watch this play when you see the opening? It's great. A bit cheesy using a ghost. I mean, anybody could do that. Just kidding. <laughs> yes. I think it's, I think it's very gripping. It's hooking. <laughs> it's hooking. <laughs> All right, you yeah, love this play the- so much, Tim, that you're taking a long time with the summary. So oh, okay, okay, I need to get going. on with the summary. Yes. Yep. <laughs> um, long story short, Hamlet goes up to the battlements, and he indeed meets his father. If it's his father. 
if it is his father, but it's, it's clearly revealed by the end of the act that it is his father. Um, Hamill will have some doubts later about whether or not it's the real deal, but I think he's pretty convinced by the end of act one. His father calls him away to a private place out of the hearing of the guards and Horatio, and he tells him why he's lurking on top of the castle, and the big secret is revealed. Hamlet's father has been killed by his brother. His brother is now king, and his brother has married Hamlet's mother, the deceased king's, the deposed, whatever, um, murdered king's ex-wife. And this is the the revenge plot begins when Hamlet's father tells him to avenge him. Avenge me. Avenge me. So at the end of act one, we know where we're going. Hamlet has got to, he, he has got to avenge his father. He heard directly from his father and to make matters even worse, what a king his father was. What an incredible king he was. He, he sings the praises of his father as a ruler and as a man. And so the injustice of his murder sparks us even more. It's not just that there's this familial affection between Hamlet and his father, but his father is actually like a really great king, a great ruler, a, a man who loved his wife. You know, he kind of had it all. And so the uncle, the uncle is a bad, bad guy. He's done a terrible, terrible thing. So we, we've got to set it right. The play is about us setting it right. That's the end of the summary. Okay, great. <laughs> we also have Ophelia thrown in there, Polonius. So we have in Act One, we learn that Hamlet has been pursuing a young woman named Ophelia, who is the daughter of Polonius. Uh, who and is, who's Polonius, Heidi? As, what's his title? I, I don't know that he has a title. He's like. He's like the king's right-hand man, the advisor to the king. Secretary, I don't know these secretaries. Yeah, she's a very, very high-born young woman, a local, and and Hamlet and Ophelia have a great love for each other. Um, Polonius also has a son named Laertes, who is excused by the king to go back to school uh, on the continent, um, so away from Denmark. And as Laertes is leaving, he advises his sister not to trust Hamlet's affection for her, that it is probably passing. Polonius also uh, backs Laertes up on that. And so now Ophelia is unsure of Hamlet's affection. Um, uh, also important to know is that at the after the ghost tells Hamlet that he must avenge his murder, Hamlet tells his friends Horatio, tells his friend Horatio uh, that he is going to feign madness and antic disposition uh, in order to figure out what to do next and to take this forward mm. motion in the plot to, to start avenging his father. Yeah. That word antic is really good because when mm-hmm. I, Tim was describing the difference between Olivier and Gibson, that was what I was thinking is that Olivier has a very ponderous disposition and Mel Gibson has a very antic disposition. Now Hamlet has both, right? Mm-hmm. So somehow you have to be both antic and ponderous at the same time. Mm-hmm. I'd like to talk about um, the couple that's at the center of the play, not Hamlet and Ophelia, because they're not a couple for long, but Gertrude and Claudius. Side note, 
you guys know that Claudius, the name Claudius never appears in this play? Like, I just assumed that he was, yeah, it never appears in this play. It's always kind of added in to his title. You know, when an actor gets the list of lines, it'll say King Claudius or Claudius, but he's nowhere named in the play. He's just the king. Interesting. Um, let's talk about Gertrude. What do we think about Gertrude? Because we find out from the king, from the ghost, Hamlet's father, that he's been unfairly, that he's been murdered by his brother. It opens up this question. Wait, does Gertrude know about this? Is this a plot? Why did she marry the king? Why did she marry the uncle, Claudius, so quickly? Surely she had to have a hand in it. But what do we think about her in act one? What do we think about her does she, is she a bad guy? Is she kind of just along for this ride and the ride is out of control? This is a roller coaster. Her father, I mean, her husband died and his brunkle, his brother has now come in and kind of swept her off her feet, but it keeps her position. Like, what are we supposed to make of Gertrude, you guys? Andrew, do you have convictions about Gertrude at the top of the play? My convictions about Gertrude at this point are that, okay, so Hamlet is both antic and ponderous. In a similar way, Gertrude can't be pinned down. She's neither one nor many. She's neither stable nor unstable. She's, she's, she's dynamically moving between them all the time. So at the top of the play, she's just an undeveloped character who's beginning to reveal herself and her affection for her son and so on. But if I'm allowed to leap way down, I do think that she reveals in, in Shakespeare's cleverness, he always has minor characters, secondary or minor characters reveal the real point of the play. And I think that if there's a thing that you can say the play is about, it's when, Ham, when she is looking at Ophelia and spoiler alert, Ophelia goes crazy and Queen Gertrude is looking at Ophelia and has a moment of honest perception. And she says this, as my sick soul, and then in brackets, as sin's true nature is. And in my view, the whole play, that's, that's, if, there's, if there is a thing that you can say this play is about, it's sin's true nature. And, and the manifestation of the sin's true nature is first and foremost, the sick soul. And so Gertrude is that manifestation, is, is a focal point for the sick soul that sin causes. And I, we, see, we see that she's still human. She still loves her son. She's still very, I, I don't, I think the human being is perfectly capable of loving one person very deeply on Monday and somebody else on Friday. Um, you know, while the, while the funeral meets cool off and become the cold cold meats for the wedding. I think humans are capable of that. And I think she does that, but I'm, I'm not prepared to say she's good or bad. I think she's, she's like all the characters or most of the characters in Hamlet. She's kind of complex and unpinnable. I'm subject to her correction on that. No, I agree with that. I think that's true. And we have, she is a central focal point of the play, Hamlet and Gertrude, that's who people are looking at throughout the play. Hamlet's looking at his mom. Other people are looking at Hamlet. There's there's all kinds of 
Shakespeare plays with the idea of people being watched and observed in Hamlet a lot and interpreted by other characters. And Gertrude's one of the main ones, but she only has 69 speeches in the play, 69 lines in the total, in the whole play. And Claudius, it's true. And Claudius and Hamlet, I mean, Hamlet has just, you know, you memorized Hamlet's parts. I mean, it's just, I don't even know how many, it's thousands. Like there's, Mm -hmm. he talks all the time. The man never shuts up. He is just Mm -hmm. always talking. Um, My my memory serves Hamlet asks over 500 questions. That's amazing. Really? That sounds right. I think so. I counted them. But Gertrude, who is under a microscope on the entire play, everyone wants to know, you know, Hamlet wants to know what she's thinking, what she's feeling, why she's making her choices. To your point, I love your point, Andrew, about the sick soul, because the sick soul is complicated, very complicated uh, and 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 hard to understand. The the healed soul is simple, right? Um, and so she's she's very difficult to understand and to interpret for audiences and for Hamlet. Um, and even for Claudius, he doesn't always understand her either. So, uh, but she doesn't speak much. And so she is, she is hard to, for audiences to interpret and different, different, um, productions over time have played her differently, sometimes as like the vamp character and sometimes as, you know, a a misunderstood kind of waif-like character. It's interesting. The queen uh, has actresses play her very differently in different performances and it almost always works, which is interesting. So true. It's so true, Heidi. Do you think, Heidi, that, that, or Tim, that maybe Gertrude is a, um, not an anti, but maybe a contra or um, I don't know what word to use, but a Mary figure and Hamlet is the child. It's a mother child being observed, but they're, but they're not, but they're, you know, they're, they're corrupted images. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like kind of like an, um, like an inverted kind of Mary and Christ figure. Yeah. Like she's, you would think she would be like an archetypal mother because to your point, it's very clear that she loves her son. Right. She has done none of this to usurp him because Hamlet should be on the throne with his father dead. Right. And she is not a, a power hungry woman. She seems and like I said, uh, we we don't know her motivations, which to our earlier question about, you know, what makes this play so great? One of the things that makes the play so great is the mysterious and ambivalent nature of Gertrude, because she is such a main act. She takes such action. She marries another man who has usurped her son like a month after her first great husband died. And none of us know why. Does she just want to be loved? Is she lonely? Has she been, was she having an affair? Are they skimmy? You know, like there's, there's, she's a fully developed character, but at the same time, she remains very mysterious. And I think that's one of Shakespeare's great achievements with this play is we don't get to cast judgment on Gertrude within the play. We have to do that within ourselves, which to your point, Andrew, is like the play holds up this mirror to our own preconceptions and judgments of this woman um, and to all the characters. We become then participants in who's watching whom in the play and who's judging whom. Um, And Gertrude, I think, is one of the characters uh, as contrasted with Hamlet who speaks a million times and tell us all, tells us all the time what he's thinking and feeling and Gertrude never, hardly ever. Um, and yet both of them have our attention. But does he, he speaks all the time, but does he actually tell us what he's thinking and feeling? Well, again, to your point, and then I'm going to stop talking for a bit because I really want to hear Tim's thoughts on this. Uh, we get a glimpse into that dynamic that you were just saying 
in act one, scene one, um, or excuse me, scene two, when the, we start the motif of seeming, right, of appearances, Hamlet starts it when he said, what the, his mother said, Gertrude says to him, why seemest you, I don't know the exact line, you guys would know, yeah. why do you seem seems, so, mother. yes, no, and he is. says, seems, no, it is, I know not seems, yeah. and yet the entire play is about what seems true uh, to each character and how they ought to act if they don't know for sure. Um, because action is demanded, but it's really hard to know what you can put your full weight on when making those choices of the will. So I don't know. What do you think, Tim? Like, what are your thoughts on Gertrude, especially having been on stage with an actress playing Gertrude? I, I'm going to save that to the end because I have like three things okay. that I want to say about Gertrude. And I want to tell you how the actress in our play, a choice that she made, and I thought it was really smart really really smart um i think that the sin of gertrude like her fearfulness at looking at her own soul i think you can look at it in one of two ways either the actress plays it that she knew from the beginning what was going to happen in which case oh man it's inky black sin that's that's got her She's in on it from the beginning. She's in on the murder of her husband and getting with her brother-in-law. The other way that you could play it is she just, after her husband, she didn't know that her husband was going to be killed, but she had enough to be really concerned that he was killed unjustly. And she looked the other way to kind of preserve her position. And it's the other way that you could kind of play this sense that she knows that something is wrong. So you don't think she could have been completely innocent? I don't think so. I just don't think so because I think her, um, why else would she be so eager to kind of confess her failures? When, when Hamlet really confronts her after the killing of Polonius, she, cop, she, she like owns it. She, there, she has lines that make it clear that she, she's like, yeah, I did not want to look in the mirror. But like, what was the cause of her not wanting to look in the mirror? I think those are the two choices. Now, maybe one of our listeners will come on in the Q&A and say, no way, Tim. She was innocent the whole time. The cause of, you know, her fear of sin was like something else entirely. But I, I don't think so. I'll stand by and say th those are the two choices that she has. Either she knew about it, in which case her situation is dire, like her, the state of her soul is dire, or she did not know about it beforehand, but just looked the other way because she wanted to stay king. So yeah, I'll marry the, I'll marry the brother-in-law knowing that he's probably got blood on his hands. I'm not going to think about that. You just triggered an irony in, me, in my mind that, that Hamlet does the play in order to get a confession out of the king. Uh-huh. The actual result is that he gets a confession out of his mother. Yeah, that's right. She does need some encouragement, though. She doesn't just come right out. Oh, with yeah. It. I mean, she, yeah. He, he, he gives her lots of types, as we would say here at Cersei. Yeah, right. Right. I want to say something. We talked, um, we talked about the Mel Gibson version. If you're going to watch the Mel Gibson version uh, with your kids, mm. Gertrude is played by Glenn Close. I think she's absolutely superb in the role. But there's a scene after the play within the play in which Hamlet goes to his mother's bedroom. You might just want to fast forward a little bit. It gets, 
I think it's appropriate to the play. It's a, an appropriate interpretation of the play, but it's it's pretty graphic. If you're if you're with your kids, fast forward a Freudian. little bit. Yeah, very Freudian. Um, the actress who played Gertrude in our version told me, um, kind of midway through the rehearsal, she was having a really hard time settling this question of how much did Gertrude know, and she really wanted to play it with a certain level of innocence. She did not want to know. And she had this theory, and I think it's really clever. It's kind of outside of the text, but her theory was Gertrude was probably like a lot of queens at that time, foreign born. She was not Danish. So in losing her husband, she is a woman hung out in the wind. She has no family nearby. She is in a real serious predicament because she doesn't have the protection and prestige of her husband anymore. Um, She has a choice. She either goes home to whatever country that she was originally, she came from. Her only other choice is to secure a position and she has to secure that position through marriage and that marriage is to the brother-in-law. So for our actress, that kind of really freed her to kind of play up that she did not know about the murder and was really invested in preserving a place for herself uh, within the kingdom by marrying the brother-in-law. And it's completely understandable that she would get with this guy so soon after the death of her father. I, I found that really compelling. I, that's like, that's the kind of example of you never see that on stage from an actor, but an actor has done this homework and it makes the, the character really compelling for the performance. I really appreciated that. And by the way, that's one thing I love about Hamlet is that, is that anybody can look at any character from any angle and then we'll bring in a new insight that you've never had before. Yeah. 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 Well, the, the ghost to, to both, the, to all interpretations of Gertrude, the ghost does not take a stand on Gertrude, which is interesting. Uh, the ghost tells Hamlet, um, uh, let not thy soul contrive against thy mother ought, leave her to heaven and to those thorns and in her bosom lodge to prick and sting her. So within the play, you cannot say that the ghost lets Gertrude off of the hook. Because he says, leave her to heaven. Yeah. He doesn't say she's not guilty, but he does say, and he, he repeats that later. And he does, he does say, she is going to be held accountable for something in this, but the ghost doesn't tell us what. But the ghost unequivocally tells us that Claudius is the murderer. Claudius is guilty. Claudius has to die. And Hamlet has to be the hand that sheds his blood. Which puts Hamlet is in an impossible situation, which here's my first big interpretive statement of this podcast, that I do not think this is a play about a man who cannot make up his mind. I think this is more like a Greek tragedy in which a central character is placed in an impossible situation in which there is no good action to take. And I, any action that he takes in this situation traps him, not just in this life, but in the life to come, because we do have a Christian play. So if Hamlet dies, or, excuse me, if, when Hamlet dies someday, uh, he will, if he murders in revenge, he will indeed 
be doomed to hell for his action. And yet at the same time, if he does not obey his father and take revenge and revenge his father, he is also doomed to hell because he has been charged by a supernatural being from beyond the grave. And so Hamlet is now stuck in a situation in which for him, it is now impossible for him to discern what is the right thing to do according to his belief system, according to the religion of the time and according to the customs of the time. So he is stuck. So I do not think this is a play about a man who's vacillating and wishy-washy and can't figure out what to do. I think it's a play about a man in an impossible situation. Heidi, I want to come back to this. So I'm going to circle back in just a second because I think that's a real insight about this play. I happen to agree with you. Um, (laughs) Well, then I can't. No, no, it, I, Andrew. If you have a dis- different view, let's let's talk about that because I think that'll be. Well, I can't agree with both of you. How can yeah. I? That that wouldn't fit. That would be boring. <laughs> <laughs> I want to before we start talking about kind of like the predicament that Hamlet's in. Let's talk about the other. Let's talk about the chief enemy of the play, which is the king, Claudius, who we found out in scene three is the murder of Hamlet's father. Andrew, I wonder if you could do us a favor and read a portion of um, Claudius's opening speech, which is scene two of act one. And I just want to set it up a little bit here by saying another one of the reasons why this play is so good is that Claudius is fantastic. He, from the first lines out of his mouth, he is brilliant. He is magisterial. He has all the things that we look for, power, prestige, ability. And it makes overcoming him, if, we, if the play is about overcoming Claudius, this great wrongdoer, Hamlet has a really, really tough job in front of him. I remember reading a book, a really fine book on narrative structure, and the, it's called Story by Robert McKee. I recommend it very highly. And Robert McKee basically makes the point, the quality of the narrative is in direct proportion to the quality of the um, antihero, of the enemy. So if you've got a small anti-hero that's easily overcome, you're just not going to have much of a play. But if you've got a mighty, mighty character who you're afraid of, who has all of the abilities that you know are esteemed, when you overcome that enemy, you've really accomplished something in your play. And I think from the opening lines of Claudius in scene two, we learn pretty quickly, this is a this is a pretty great man. He's who, a worthy opponent. He is a worthy opponent. A great man, but not a good man. Yeah, right, right. A great man, but not a good man. Um, I want to point out something. This is just, I'm going to fanboy Shakespeare here for a second. I just want to point out something about Claudius's opening line. And Andrew, I wonder if you would, would just read um, his opening speech. I'm going to jump in and interrupt you uh, to make a little point. But would you mind reading the opening part of that opening speech if if i if i may prologue it just a little in the the apprenticeship when i when i did the apprenticeship we would read hamlet and the basic activity we would engage in was comparing hamlet's rhetoric with claudius's hamlet i mean Mm. and claudius is a great highly trained rhetorician and he uses it 
to the highest degree of wickedness. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he does. All right. So, so he says, I can't speak like a king, but here you go, Tim. Though yet of Hamlet our dear brother's death, the memory be green, and that it us be fitted to bear our hearts in grief, and our whole kingdom to be contracted in one brow of woe, yet so far hath discretion fought with nature, that we with wisest sorrow think on him, together with remembrance of ourselves. Therefore our sometime sister, now our queen, the imperial jointress to this warlike state, have we, as true with a defeated joy, with an auspicious and a dropping eye, with mirth and funeral, and with dirge and marriage, an equal scale weighing delight and dole, taken to wife. Okay, I want to pause you there, Andrew. Sorry, you were just getting rolling. I think, I think, if I'm not mistaken, the verb of the sentence happens in the last three words of what Andrew just spoke. Mm-hmm. Taken to wife. There's, and when you're listening to this, there's this, I think, internal anticipation within what is being said. I, I found myself every night that I was on stage, I would listen to Claudius deliver this lines and I'd be like, wait, are you going to get to it? 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 And then finally, the verb of the sentence, which as English, as, <laughs> as people who speak language, we're always seeking that verb. What is the thing that's going to make the subject go? What exactly is the action or the state of being that's happening here? And Claudius begins with prepositional phrase, prepositional phrase, prepositional phrase. And I think I counted in his opening speech, I think I counted 27 prepositional phrases and he piles them all on top of each other here at the beginning before he gets to the verb, which I think is actually an exercise in great rhetoric. He gives all of this background information about who he is, the state of the kingdom, about who his wife is, about who Hamlet is, about he gives us basically every a preface to the entire play before he gives us a verb in the sentence. I just think it's like, it's fantastic. It's absolutely superb. I just wanted to point that out as kind of like a credit to Claudius. He's, yeah, he's got ability. I really appreciate that. And, and I'm going to, I'm going to qualify what you're saying just a slight bit because I think it's relevant to the Hamlet theme. There's actually two sentences in what I just read, but in both of them, the verb comes at the end. In the first one, it's we think. And then in the second one, it's taken to wife. And so the reason I the reason I caught that, and I wouldn't have caught that if you weren't making your excellent point there, but the reason I caught it and then thought it significant is because Claudius thinks, okay? He says, we think of him, th- think on him together with remembrance of ourselves. And then in my version here, it's there's a period there, all right? So we think. But then the next sentence involves an immediate action. So he defers it in the sentence, but in reality, he makes his decision and acts on it. And Hamlet can't. Hamlet Mm -hmm. has to think and think and think. 
And notice what he thinks on. We think with wisest sorrow, we think on him, my brother, together with remembrance of ourselves. Right? He thinks about his brother, but he remembers himself because he has to. He's the king. And so he acts. Hamlet doesn't have the luxury. He's going to have to think and think and think. And, and it's deferral, right? It's deferral, deferral, deferral. But for Hamlet, it's the whole play. For Claudius, it's just an extra sentence. Yeah. I love, I love that point, especially about the prepositions. After this opening monologue from Claudius, in which the whole court is gathered around, this is a big ceremonial event. Um, the stage is cleared except for Hamlet. And we've learned a little bit about Hamlet in this scene. But here comes the first big monologue from Hamlet. And let's, let's listen to a little bit of this. The actor who's going to be playing Hamlet in this audio is one of my favorites. And this is one of my favorite one of my favorite productions of Hamlet. We'll talk about it a little bit more. So this is Richard Burton from a Broadway performance who this wonderful Wales accent uh, giving the two, two solid flesh uh, uh, monologue after the court has cleared. Oh, that this two, two solid flesh would melt, thaw and resolve itself into a dew. Oh, that the everlasting had not fixed his cannon against self-slaughter. Oh, God, God, how weary, stale, flat, and unprofitable seem to me all the uses of this world. Fire, Pont, oh, fire! Tis an unweeded garden that grows to seed. Things rank and gross in nature possess it merely. That it should come to this, but two months dead. Nay, not so much, not two. So excellent a king that was to this Hyperion to a satyr. So loving to my mother that he might not beteem the winds of heaven visit her face too roughly. Heaven and earth must, I remember, why she would hang on him as if increase of appetite had grown by what it fed on. And yet within a month... Let me not think, Aunt. Heaven and earth must I remember, and yet within a month. Let me not think, Aunt. Did you guys note that Hamlet doesn't quite get the time right, or he changes his mind about when exactly his father died, that it should come to this, but two months dead, nay, not so much, not two, and then at the very end... Heaven and earth, must I remember, and yet within a month, let me not think on't. He, is he, what's going on there with Hamlet? Does he not remember the timeline? Is this telling us something about him? Did Shakespeare somehow make a mistake and mess up the timeline himself? What does he say in the, in the play scene where he, ta- he, he says something about it again to his mother? I don't remember. I was just trying to remember that too, Andrew. I couldn't remember, but it could be a couple of things. I've heard it explained a couple of ways. One, she married him. She married Claudius a month ago, and it's been a couple of weeks before this scene. Mm. So I've heard that. And, but I'm not sure that that completely sufficiently explains it because there's several of these moments within the play when Hamlet or even other characters contradict themselves about little details. Um, And we do know about Hamlet that 
as Andrew, I'm hoping is about to talk about that he does, he's antic, right? He is, he is changeable. He's mercurial. He's emotional. He, he's has very strong reactions. He's under a lot of stress. Uh, and, but this is before the ghost. So the appearance of the ghost, if it is a ghost, because I actually think there is a possibility that it isn't his real father, um, that there we do know about Hamlet. He's been through a terrible, terrible ordeal. He's already haunted by it, but it seems as though this is kind of a natural part of his disposition, that he is a changeable person. He's an emotional person, a big reactor, um, and by and, and a melancholy kind of antic person. Andrew said ponderous and antic describes him. He's really human. Um, so he's, you know, a lot like us, but when you say, I don't know, Andrew, I want to hear your thoughts on this and on just antic in general related to Hamlet. Hmm. Well, what I was thinking about is, is the question of time is a big deal in Hamlet. <laughs> and so at one point, the time is out of joint. And, and this is reflecting that, that everybody's, Hamlet himself is referring to the amount of time in different ways because time is out of joint. It's hard to get it right. I also wonder, though, I'd be interested in your response to this. Might it just be that they weren't so precise and scientific about time at that time? Yeah. A month. You know, it's like we talk about three days and we have to have 72 hours. But before before the clock and the calendar, three days could be Thursday night, Friday and Saturday morning. Mm-hmm. But not much more than two days. So do, do you think that could be part of it? I, I For me... I think the broader point historically, they, they didn't feel this compulsion to be so precise with time is a good one. I still think that Hamlet would know, like my dad died recently. I know exactly how long it was. And it's not because I live in a scientific world. It's because, man, this was just, you know, like a, a defining like moment in the last years of my life. How and I think for Hamlet, it's this, was that? How long ago was it? Uh, three weeks, three weeks plus four days. So you got it pretty precise there. Yeah. And it's not because I'm like marking it off on a calendar or anything like that. It's just, yeah, I know it was the culmination of. Nonetheless, you live in a calendar. Like we, we just are so hyper-conscious in our lives today of, of the calendar. Yeah. I wonder if somebody in Hamlet's day would have been able to say it was three weeks, four days ago. I don't know. Maybe not because you're right to your point. They don't have, they're not pulling out their iPhone and opening their iCal. Yeah, right. They don't have that. There's another one. I got two calendars. <laughs> Plus I have my Google calendar. <laughs> anyway, I'm sorry. I don't, I don't want to, it's more a question. I'm not trying to make the point. I'm just right. trying to see if it's a point. Yeah. So that's uh, Hamlet's opening monologue begins, oh, that this too, too solid flesh would melt, thaw, and resolve itself into a dew. We meet Hamlet, and and I actually want to say the next lines also. Or that the everlasting had not fixed his cannon against self-slaughter. Mm-hmm. Oh, God, God, how weary, stale, flat, and unprofitable seems to me all the uses of this world. Fie on it, fie, tis an unweeded garden that grows to seed. Um, Hamlet launches into the deep from the very beginning 
uh, he wishes that he could resolve himself, that his flesh could resolve into a dew. And he looks at nature and he sees nothing but an unweeded garden. Is this just a man in mourning? Or does Hamlet have something else on his mind? Is something else weighing on him beyond his father's death, beyond his... When Hamlet is talking to the, to the act, no, where is it? What? Oh, it's in a movie about Shakespeare. There's a scene where, where Shakespeare says to an actor, don't, don't use up all your, your weapons right at the beginning. You won't have anything later. And he's talking about, you know, don't give away all your, all your emotion right in the first Mm. line. And I can't help but wonder if, if, um, well, there's two thoughts. I can't help but wonder if Shakespeare is deliberately, both going against that and living by it. It's kind of like the theme that you, a movie should start with an explosion and should build from there. Mm. <laughs> but I, but at the same time, I'm not going to give away too much of my thought right now on this, but I'll just say this. I think there's more to it than just mourning. Mm-hmm. I think that his crisis is deeper. So the last point I'll make, and then I want to hear Heidi, but the last point I want to make on this question is that I think that Hamlet is a human being taken to the same degree of extremity that Achilles was, and that those two extremities are within the Christian paradigm, the most extreme point you can get, and within the Hellenistic paradigm, the most extreme point you can get. And I- it's, Go ahead. Go ahead. I was gonna ask you, do you think he's here in this first soliloquy, or do you think the play builds toward that? I think he's been shaken up. His spine is still shaking. And I think that in that sense, he's not conscious, perhaps, of all the things that are creating an existential crisis for him, but he's in it, right? It's, mm-hmm. not, it's not so much, it's not, I'll put it this way, it's not that he has analyzed himself into despair, it is that life has thrown him into despair. And, and I think Shakespeare's reflecting something of his age in that. So that's all I'll say about that at this point. We got five more. I know. Yeah, I think... <laughs> It's funny that we're talking about this because there's so much to the craft and to the rhetoric and to the language and to the plot and the structure of Hamlet um, that can fill an hour and a half podcast, right? But the thing that makes Hamlet great is exactly what Andrew just said. It, it, is, it is the existential depths that this play plums, right? Explores. Um, it's it's like Shakespeare took, like there's like this deep, deep well, right? And and Shakespeare takes like a really long stick and just like stirs it up and then lets us look at it. And through all the things on the structural level and on the linguistic level and whatever, but the content of the of, of this play, especially so Hamlet has seven soliloquies in the play. And we and a soliloquy is when a character is alone on stage giving a speech that tells you about their inner or interior life. Um, and so this is the most that's ever in a Shakespeare play uh, is seven. And seven is a very symbolic number. (laughs) And that's how many Hamlet has. And each of them goes to to what you just said, Andrew, just this very deep level, this pondering of the plight of being human in a world that is so profoundly broken. 
And each soliloquy works on multiple levels of interpretation, right? The inner, if you think of it as three concentric circles, uh, the each soliloquy addresses if the concentric, if the inner circle is Hamlet's soul, right? That, that we're talking about death. We're talking about love. We're talking about choices of the will. We're talking about uh the, the impact of his faith and on his actions, all kinds of things, his thoughts about God, about, about this woman, and he, all, these, all these things. And then we also have a second concentral circle, which is the fact that he is the prince over a, a land, right? The impact on, on Denmark, the impact on his society and on the, on, on the throne, on the world of Denmark. And then you have another concentric circle, which is this universal level of human existence where all of us are Hamlet. All of us are thinking then about our own suffering, our own questions, uh, these, the, these universal questions that Hamlet is bringing up of what does it mean to be human? How do I make choices? What does it mean to, to, to face death um, and, and to love and to be in relationship, all these things. So to your point, Andrew, that each soliloquy is almost bottomless and there's seven of them within a context of this play. That's a masterpiece on a literary level. And so how do you begin to even scratch the surface? The three of us, um, I guess what we're hoping to do probably is say, you know, be far beyond this podcast, go ahead and look into the well <laughs> for our listeners. Read it and read it again and again and again and act it out as you possibly can. That's right. As you were talking, T.S. Eliot's famous accusation comes to mind where he said that that Hamlet is most certainly a failure as a work of art. And, and ironically, I think Eliot might be right because what what makes Hamlet so immortal is precisely that it does fail as a work of art because it tries to do what art can't do and succeeds. Mm-hmm. Right? It, it, it goes beyond the restraints and limitations of what a work of art can do. And it's almost as if Hamlet is too much a real person. He's not, he's not a work of art. He's a real person. And well, to your point, the first line of the soliloquy applies to exactly what you just said. Oh, that this too, too solid flesh would melt, right? Like that, that I wouldn't be real, that I would, that I would dissolve, that I wouldn't have to, I wouldn't have to, to live through this, this terrifying world. But Tim, you've been, you haven't had a chance to talk. So what do you, <laughs> what are, you ask the question, what do you see in this soliloquy beyond mourning or grief? Well, I, I I appreciate that Andrew is kind of trying to withhold some of Andrew and I have had a lot of conversations, as you know, Heidi, off the air, and I think both of us have kind of happened upon um, a vision of what's happening in England at the time of the writing of this play that I think might really inform the the first audience that sees Hamlet. I kind of want to save that for act two. So I'm going to, I'm going to say, you'll defer yeah, let's wait. as well. Let's, uh, let's, let's defer. I will say this as a preface to that discussion next week. I think that the way a good, helpful way to think about um, a lot of Shakespeare's really mature works are that they function in two different ways. They function in a straightforward plot and the straightforward plot is, um, the revenge tragedy. And I think it's helpful to think about the revenge tragedy as uh, Hamlet is in a police state 
constantly being watched, constantly being watched. Like count the number of scenes in which he's not being watched and you won't find many. He's always being spied upon. So he has to get to your point, Heidi. He has to kind of get revenge per his father's instruction. And yet he's always under watch because people know that's a dangerous man. His father is dead. He was the rightful heir to the throne. That's a dangerous man. Keep your eye on him, right? Okay, so, but Shakespeare, like he did with Richard II, Heidi, I think like he did with Romeo and Juliet, there's this kind of upper story plot that's happening. And that upper story plot is, I think, the thing that we need to get into next week. Real quickly, before we go, if you are listening to this podcast and you, you're like, yeah, I want to see another, I'm going to see a movie of Hamlet. Let's just really briefly go over some of the major productions of Hamlet that have happened during the last 50, 60 years. We mentioned Laurence Olivier's 1948 movie version. There's also the Richard Burton 1964 production. This is kind of the famous street clothes production that was done in Broadway. The director, John Gilgood, pushed out apparently um, a rack of street clothes for his performers. And he's just like, yeah, just pick something. Wear jeans if you want to. So it's very dressed down, very, very simple. There's the Mel Gibson 1990 version, which is directed by Franco Zeffirelli. Zeffirelli, uh, if you listen to the Romeo and Juliet podcast, Zeffirelli is the same director as the 68 movie or the 68 movie version of Romeo and Juliet. Two more productions that I think are really worth paying attention to. Highly recommend David Tennant's 2000. That's my favorite one. It's really Patrick good. Patrick Stewart isn't it? is my, the Claudius. best Claudius I've ever so seen. Oh, good. And David Tennant is, I mean, he's, he's a master. That's my favorite production of Hamlet. And I think they do a great job of kind of representing how much Hamlet is being watched. Mm -hmm. I think that's one of the great strengths of that production. There's a lot of camera angles, like I'm kind of yes. this, like meta contemplation on the power of technology because it's placed in modern day. It's super cool. It's I loved very it. clever. The last one I'll mention just because I love the actor is Andrew Scott, um, British actor. He's in 1947. I think that's the name of the movie. Several other things. Wonderful actor. There was a 2017 production that was broadcast on BBC Two. I think if you really want to dwell on what Hamlet is saying, I think Andrew Scott's might be the best of the lot. I don't. It's not my favorite production, but he makes Hamlet's internal monologue so understandable. I can track him the entire way. So those are just a few of the productions. If you would like to see something on Amazon Prime, Netflix, you've probably got access to least one or two of those. Okay. So, um, Heidi, Andrew, we've wrapped up act one next week, act two, Hamlet will know the problem that he's facing. He's been commissioned to revenge, but he's living in a castle owned by his uncle. He is under surveillance. And also my gosh, he's in love. Just to make things worse, he's in love with Ophelia. I was going to say, don't, we can't forget Ophelia. No. That's such an important part of the play. And she'll she'll shine beginning next act. Yeah. So that's where we'll pick it up. Uh, I want to thank both of you for joining me. And we're looking forward to 
act two of Hamlet next week. If you want to jump into the conversation, as always, find us on the Close Reads podcast page on Facebook. There's always chatter happening about what's happening both on our sister podcast, which is Close Reads, and on this podcast, The Plays the Thing. We'd love to hear from you there. Until next week, Heidi, Andrew, thanks for being here. And as always, happy reading. A brave man once requested me to answer questions that are key. Is it to be or not to be? And I replied, oh, why ask me? Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.